good people of the world. It's Oliver here, and The Natural High Club is about the pursuit of happiness in all its forms. Just to explain the format of the podcast a little more, this isn't a highly produced and highly edited interview. I'm a journalist, and I want to retain the flow and authenticity in these discussions, so I leave them largely free of studio tinkering. So apologies in advance for any hesitation, repetition, misquotes, or moments of poor quality sound and outside ambience. I just feel it's best to give you the whole picture from each carefully chosen person that I speak to. They are substantial and meaty interviews, which you might come to view as companions that you can download and then pick up and put down in chunks in the midst of your busy lives. As usual, you can get in touch with me with any questions, suggestions or comments by emailing oliver at naturalhigh.club or tweeting me at naturalhighclub. Enjoy the show. Hello. Hey! <laughs> How are you doing, mate? I'm fine. How are you? That's just crazy. How long has it been since we last spoke? I was trying to think about it. It's over 20 years, isn't it? Is it 20 it's years? not over 20 years. That's a wild exaggeration. <laughs> we saw each other in our disaffected 30s. I'm sure we did. No, no, no way. Surely not. I think that, I, as I said to you recently, I think the last time I saw you, we were running away from a, a, an old friend of ours up the street having um, suggested that his brother might be gay in a very provincial area of the world. <laughs> I can't even remember that. You know, it's terrible. Um, I'm getting old. It's, we, were, yeah. we were at Aubrey's, I think, in Canterbury, and, um, yeah, um, and you and me hooked up, and then we saw him, and, uh, yeah, we really, really annoyed him. And then, and then I just seem <laughs> to remember... We haven't seen him since. This is we tough. haven't seen him since, but apparently he has three children, three daughters. Well, he's been busy then. <laughs> absolutely. And you've been busy too. Well, I've got two kids of my own now, so, yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's absolutely incredible. Um, ju I just basically want to uh, give some context to this conversation to uh, any listeners. Okay. Uh, I, and basically, me and Ben go back a good 20 years. We spent several summers together post-school, post-A-levels, being generally disaffected, drinking, smoking, bypassing the daytimes and coming alive in the night. Uh, <laughs> yes. But after... After opening a Facebook page a few months back, I happened upon your name, Ben Uzi, a meditation teacher in Oxford. Just yeah. absolutely yeah. wonderful. Um, I've, I've and I thought that's back slightly. You know. Yeah, incredible. <laughs> so I'd like you to tell me, in your own words, what happened during those many years? How did you go from Nightcrawler, who was undecided about your career, to yeah. Family Man and Yogi? <laughs> well, I wouldn't describe myself as a yogi by any stretch of the imagination, but... Um, well, you know, just the usual, really. We sort of, um, you know, we spend our, our sort of 20s trying to find ourselves. Don't really seem to get anywhere. Um, I ended up following, going into a career in television, which sounded, you know, ideal. I was working for Sky Sports. You know, you and I, we, we're always into our sport and our footy mm. and that kind of stuff. And uh, it seemed on the surface to sort of, you know, an ideal job. But uh, it, it wasn't working for me personally. Um, so Why? I spent, oh... I don't know, it just left me kind of cold, really. and um, Empty. Yeah, exactly. And it was um, a lot of time spent sat in a small dark room in front of a wall of screens um, getting shouted at uh, by an irate <laughs> producer or director, you know, being made to feel that um, if I didn't get this, you know, graphic or whatever it was right, then it was the end of the world. And I was like, you know, it really isn't. Um, but um, it just didn't, it, it wasn't right for me. Um, you know, great people I work with, no, no, you know, no problems there or anything like that. Just it, it wasn't for me. Um, How long did you do it for? On and off to eight, eight, ten years sort of thing. Wow, but long time then. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I went freelance eventually and kind of muddled around. I went traveling, tried to find myself. Didn't Where find did you go? Um, Central America, for, you know, mainly um, sort of Panama. Did you, have, did you have a nose for the job? Did I have a what, sorry? A, a nose for the job. What do you mean? <laughs> Central America. <laughs> I just imagine, imagine there's some quite nefarious activities going oh, on there. Oh, right. Uh, no, I mean, uh, this. Uh, uh, what I was, I was kind of slowly kind of um, coming around to the idea that I, I wanted to live a healthier lifestyle Great. <laughs> at this point. So um, I had some adventures, but nothing of the sort of, uh, of, our, of our, you know, that you would be some compatible with how we, we used to behave back in the day. Uh, Nightcrawlers. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you know, I wasn't, you know, completely uh, boring in that respect. But holier uh, than thou. Yeah, I was looking for other other sources of um, nourishment, shall we say. Mm. 
Excellent. I just, just before I left, I met um, a very beautiful girl uh, and then left her. <laughs> wow. For a couple of months. But um, uh, she That was, must have been a bit of a wrench. It, well, it was. It was because she would later become my wife. So Amazing. she was clearly, you know, the one. Even even at that point, I was kind of aware, OK, she's she's pretty special. But she was cool. She said no, because I'd already booked this trip before before we met. Yeah. Um, and where were you living in London at the time? Yeah, yeah, um, down by Tower Bridge, sort of way. Okay. And um, how did you meet the lady of your life? Uh, well, this is uh, this is a, a, a well. We were as I was freelancing as the sort of TV graphics guy. Um, I did some corporate work, and I ended up working on the launch of the Peugeot three o seven. I think it was in Birmingham. Mm -hmm. This big shindig at the ICC, and. Um, I, I didn't realise, but I'd actually spoken to her on the phone. She kind of part, said she answered the phone when I was speaking to the production company, and um, and you know, uh, then she just she, she just said hello and passed me on to uh, the next person. Um, uh, but you know, I didn't realise that we'd actually spoken before we met. But I still vividly remember the moment we met. I sort of arrived at the at the at the, the ICC backstage, and everyone was running around like a headless chicken. So I just kind of sat still and waited for someone to notice me. And um, and uh, as as I was sitting there, this this one of the production team walked past, said, "Someone let me know when the graphics guy gets here." You know, I went, "Oh yeah, that's me. I'm I'm Ben." And then from behind this woman just emerged Claire. She just kind of leapt out of, out of, out of thin air like some kind of ninja. And, um, and I was just immediately, it was one of those moments where, you know, you kind of think, pay attention. You know, the, the universe is telling you to pay attention. She just kind of appeared. And uh, when I look back on it, I, I kind of, even at that moment, it was, it was something happened. Wow. Yeah. So some, something happened at that moment, or do you think maybe it's in retrospect that you feel something happened? But it, no, so I when... definitely, she definitely literally, she literally sprung out of nowhere. And I, <laughs> I'm slightly, like, taken, you know, slightly taken aback, but also, you know, immediately um, drawn to her. But looking back on it, you could just see as well, you know, that extra layer of red. Oh, that's amazing. <laughs> that makes me feel really mushy. <laughs> It's kind of sick making, really, isn't it? But, uh... Not at all. It's beautiful. I just, I, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm constantly flummoxed as to how love actually happens. Well, it's a mystery, isn't it? Uh, a complete mystery. And uh, I know I nearly scuppered the whole thing. Um, but by doing know, what? Uh, well, we, we, we had this brilliant weekend in, in, in Birmingham, of all places, you know. When you were doing the event? Yeah, absolutely. You know, and you got on really well with her, etc. Yeah, absolutely. And there was, you know, she, she would sort of wangle it so she could bring me the, the graphics updates. Sitting next to me and touch knees and all that kind of stuff, and then wow, you're so, a fast mover, touching yeah, knees oh, on the first weekend. Well, why do you think I liked her? You know, <laughs> <laughs> um, and it was all flirty, flirty, and then um, at the end of the of the of the weekend or week or whatever, it was like three or four days. Um, uh, there was a big after show party for all the crew. And uh, it was at the Jam House in Birmingham, which I don't know if you've ever been to, but it's, um, what's his name? The guy, uh, the, the pianist, the famous BBC uh, music guy does, Jules Holland. Jules Holland. Okay, yeah, yeah. Um, it's his place. It's his, or was his place. Amazing. And, um, and he was there playing with his big band and all that sort of stuff. And um, I kind of arrived at the door of this, this, of this, this building, and I've walked in, and as you walk in, there's kind of a lower level, then straight up, there's, a, there's like a balcony in, on the next level. And I walked in, and I looked up, and she was there, looking down yeah. at exactly that point. And it was just kind of like, you know, the place is packed, full of people, and I've just walked in, boom, there she is. And it's like, oh, this is awesome, this is brilliant. And we so danced, you know, danced the night away, had a great night, and it all kind of went from there. That's absolutely amazing. It's just such a romantic way to meet and to get yeah. together. Yeah, it was pretty cool, really, I have to say. And, um, you know, she's, she's made me incredibly happy. You know, we, we got married uh, about five years later. But um, okay. as, 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 as I was saying earlier, I nearly, I nearly scuppered the whole deal, you know, being a, you know, a young fool who, you know, doesn't want, doesn't want to be, you know... Tied down. Tied down and all that sort of stuff. I, I nearly blew it. But maybe your aloof ways probably sucked her in even further. Maybe well, that's... maybe maybe the, the sort of the hard to get uh, uh, thing worked, but it was it was not intentional. <laughs> but you'd already booked your holiday, but you'd already booked your travels by that point. Yeah, absolutely. I was I was on the way to um, Central America, um, and was it like a one way ticket, or did you have a specific time frame in mind? Uh, I n n non specific. I spent about four months out there in the end. 
um, just kind of mooching around and, you know, trekking and uh, meeting some cool people, doing some cool stuff. And um, But, you know, it, it wasn't anything sort of, I can't, you know, go say, I, I, you know, I, I found myself and mm. I met some, you know, guru who showed me the way or anything like that. But it was reflective of a need to, you know, I was seeking. I didn't know what I was looking for, but I was seeking seeking something. And yeah. um, but she came out as well. So she came out for Christmas because I was out through. It was around about nine eleven as well. So when wow. I, it was just after the twin towers had been blown to smithereens, yeah. um, and uh, so it was quite an interesting time to be travelling around the world because you know heightened security and all that sort of stuff. Sure. Um, but she she came out. And we spent some time out there together, which kind of. I thought it was really cool to, you know, she'd only, we'd only known each other a few months and she just hopped on a plane and flew out to the other side of the world. I don't think she'd ever, she'd been maybe, she had traveled before, but not on her own. Mm. Um, and uh, yeah, so, you know, I had a lot of respect for her for that, for that as well. Yeah, totally. And obviously she felt something really profound in terms of the meeting that she'd had with you too. It's, again, oh, yeah. Yeah. you're getting me all mushy again. That's just wonderful. <laughs> it's absolutely wonderful, though. Somebody just feels so strongly about you, she's prepared to travel that far. Where specifically did you go in Central America? So we started off in Costa Rica, which I can honestly say is one of the most amazing countries you could ever go to. It's, it's, they've got such a beautiful philosophy out there. Um, I think it, there's, you know, it's... Of, every, of all the countries in the world, it has the largest largest percentage of its land turned over to um, uh, natural reserve. Wow. So, you know, uh, that, that they, you know, you could argue that's because their economy is largely dependent upon um, uh, tourism for, you know, for, for that. But equally, I think it's to do with the philosophy of the people. They're very proud and um, environmentally conscious and uh, amazing. Really lovely people. They don't, they don't have an army. Right, there's no army Great. in Costa Rica, but they're completely surrounded by all these other nutty countries. But somehow seem to manage to um, you abstain. Know. Yes, absolutely. absolutely, amazing. Yeah. So the very just... last person I interviewed on the Natural High uh, has a house in Costa Rica, and she says it's the, her favourite place in the whole world. Well, she's incredibly lucky because it is beautiful. It's got everything. You've got volcanoes and volcanic landscapes. You've got jungles, rainforests. You've got the Caribbean Sea on one side, the Pacific Ocean on the other. It's Where do I sign? <laughs> <laughs> and there's this amazing place called um, the, the highest point in um, in Costa Rica is called Chiripo, and um, I didn't actually make it up to the top of it, unfortunately. But apparently, on a clear day, you can stand on the top of Chiripo and see both the Atlantic and the Pacific Oceans at the amazing. same. Amazing. Yeah. But yeah, so Costa Rica, one of my favourite places in the world. Absolutely um, beautiful. Um, then I went up to Nicaragua, which was also cool, um, but a bit, you know, a bit darker, a bit crazier. Edgy. Yeah, definitely, definitely. A lot uh, of poverty there? Yeah, massively. And, and in Costa Rica too, but not, mm. not to the same degree. Um, but yeah, really, really, you know, quite, um, quite a lot of poverty. And uh, so, I, you know, up to there, and then I went back down through Costa Rica and into Panama. And uh, Panama was amazing. Panama was the craziest of the lot, really was. I mean, you've got this immense wealth in Panama City, and then, you know, the rest of the country is just desperately poor. And there's, the, right. the, you know, the down in the south where it, you know, connects with um, Colombia, you've got the Darien Gap, which is just, you know, the, the, the wildest, craziest place in the world, probably. You know, you've got all these nutty drug, um, drug people running around the jungle and... Right. Various, you know, rebels and you know, fighters and all this kind of stuff. Um, My God, you know, and uh, it's just, it's, I didn't go anywhere near it. Right, <laughs> like, I just heard about yeah, it. All, 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 all the advice was just don't go anywhere near it. So I did. Right. Uh, but I went down the Panama Canal, which was uh, pretty spectacular. Mm -hmm. And um, there's a, you got, you got Panama City at one end, and then a colon, the aptly named colon, at right. the other, other end. At the arse end of the country. Yeah, well, just, you know, you kind of, you get, it's one of those places, again, where they say, don't go there, just do not go there. But I had to go there to go on a boat mm. to get from one end, of, obviously, to get to the other end of the, to go down the canal. Um, and we, I sort of got the bus there and got off, and I got off in the middle of a riot. <laughs> oh, my God, what an adventure. <laughs> yeah, sort of, you pull, you, we, we sort of bus pulled up, and the bus driver's just kind of like, well, this happens every day sort of thing. And literally, there's riot police, tear gas, everything going going on, and you sort of uh, think, right, okay, do I get off the bus, or do I just keep driving? Oh, my God. And why were they rioting? Just oh, because of general bad who conditions? Who Lack of civil rights or something? Yeah. You know, it was a Monday. I don't know. But, uh, yeah. <laughs> 
But uh, we got off the bus and we're, the place we needed to get to was about um, 500 metres away from where this riot was happening. So we just, we just pegged it and uh, got inside the marina, which was kind of heavily you know, guarded and you know, soldiers and guns on the, on the doors and stuff like that. So uh, we were all right once we were in there. And, um, but uh, yeah, that was an interesting uh, you know, couple of seconds. What an adventure. <laughs> Crazy. This yeah, was in so Panama. Really, this is in Panama, yeah. Mm. So yeah, I mean, it wasn't. It was a fascinating trip, and uh, but you know, I, I didn't. Uh, I, did, I can't say I sort of came back dramatically changed, or you know, having sort of achieved a, a lot in writing or anything like that. But uh, but having seen, I will pause you there for a second because I definitely want to hear what happens next. But I, do you think? I mean, obviously, it was a chastening experience in some ways, and also to see all that poverty. But do you oh, think that? Do you think there's like seeing? Do you think it's necessary to see things like that in your life? Because you know, for us from the Western world, we we have so much, and I think that we we do generally get really complacent because you know I was living in London for a long time, and I left London because not not it wasn't the only reason I left, but I just people just seemed so apathetic, and they had so much, and it yeah. just, you know, and I just think that sometimes it's so necessary to see real poverty in developing in the developing world or the undeveloped world just to remember just to ground you and to remember like how much we actually have i yeah i wholeheartedly agree with you um it, you know travel broadens the mind in all kinds of ways but yeah i mean that's that's often um the great you know the great eye-opener isn't it you go to these places and and often you know these people live in abject poverty but they're so welcoming they're so open they're so friendly yeah there's plenty there who you know happily stick a knife in your back for you know what you know use trainers but they're actually the minority the vast majority of people are are really lovely, even though they they have nothing compared to say what we have um, in the West. Yeah, we're 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 hopelessly out of touch um, in the West. I think with um, with the reality that for mo that most people live with uh, on a day to day basis. So yeah, it can be really um, really beneficial to travel the world. You know, to volunteer abroad, to get involved with um, you know projects that that help to you know perhaps bring people out of poverty or you know help them with some of the problems they're facing. It's really valuable stuff to do with your life, um, you know, more so than, you know, earning big bucks and, and stuff like that. Yeah, definitely. I, you know, I, I firmly believe that you can't really know what happiness is until you actually know what sadness is as well, or until you can view, until you can observe a lot of sadness too, yeah, just yeah. to ground you. I went to India um, many years ago and I, um, I witnessed exactly the sort of thing that you're talking about, people with absolutely nothing. And to start with, I thought, those poor people, they've got absolutely nothing. And then I thought, well, what, what have they got? Well, they've got simple lives and their <laughs> lives are based around family and making enough money to have an evening meal together and yeah. then i think about the western world and i think you know what are we what are we struggling for we're struggling to pay off our credit cards we're struggling to get the latest bit of it you know a piece of a phone for example which looks amazing and then a year later you hate it because it's not the latest one it's it's um it's, it's funny, crazy it's yeah crazy. i mean it's just sort of it's it's sort of um gen it's sort of falsely generated desires where actually you know the simple there's a lot to be said for the simple life I, I, I concur entirely, and um, you know, one thing I'm I'm I, I, I'm keen to find in my life is more simplicity, and um, I, I I don't always achieve that, but um, that's certainly if I have a goal in life, it's to to keep it simple, um, and uh, you know, not get distracted by all this you know paraphernalia and endless um, you know uh, stimulation that is sent our way via the various uh, forms of media that we have available to us yeah, um, a vicious cycle of greed yeah, material greed yeah totally and, and 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 you're right I mean what more do we need than you know family friends and a good meal I mean what else what else is there really that fundamentally makes us happy and nourishes us I mean it, you know none of this material stuff really does I mean it's not without its value or its uses I'm not I'm not saying we should all go and live in a in a mud hut and um, you know uh, sit around the fire, but um, maybe maybe nice to do it occasionally. Uh, Absolutely. <laughs> but yeah, there's this sort of you know materials seem to cr just create an endless cycle of greed of wanting yeah. more materials, better materials, you know, other materials. I you know you get the house, then you want the bigger house. You get yeah. the phone, you want the better phone. With the, with the Joneses is is, um, is is it seems to be a very important thing. You know, status and. A lot of this, this kind of um, endless um, chasing of material wealth is, is about status, really, isn't it? It's about how do you measure yourself against the guy next to you. It's this kind of ceaseless competition and Absolutely. climbing well, the greasy pole that, I don't know, I don't even know where the pole leads. I don't think anyone knows where, knows where it leads. So uh, I like the idea that you should never compete against someone else. You should only ever compete against your former self.
Yeah, it's brilliant. Absolutely. Spot on. You know, who else, who else can you really compete against, you know? And, but, you know, the, the other thing, which, again, I bang on about it all the time, but I think, you know, when, when you wake up every day without pain, you should really appreciate that, too, because mm. it's something which is, you know, it's one of the most oft-forgotten things, elements of life, but without it, you have nothing. If you don't have your health, you have nothing. Oh, but, yeah. you know, so I try to appreciate that every day because, you, you know, waking up without pain, it's almost, it's, it's you don't, you know, you, you're not aware that you're waking up without pain because there is no pain. But, you yeah. know, if you're ill for a couple of days, the first few days after being ill, you just you have this bounce, this it bounce in your step, don't you? Because <laughs> yeah. you're oh, appreciating you your health. Yeah, just the simple things. Being able to get out of bed and walk. What a miracle. Yeah, yeah it is. <laughs> just, it really, really is. Yeah. I mean, I think cultivate, cult, cultivating um, a sense of gratitude for everything you have, it's, um, it's an integral part of many um, uh, sort of wisdom traditions, you know, Buddhism in particular. You know, yeah. they, really, they really push this idea that, you know, cultivating a sense of gratitude is, is really, really helps you to appreciate what you've got, um, to, pre to appreciate what others don't, um, to, uh, to develop a sense of compassion for yourself and for others. And that's, that's, that's so important. Um, for it's all amazing. Of and I, I really want to get, I really want to connect those dots. So you did, mm. the, you did Central America and then, but that didn't, you didn't really find yourself in South America. You had an amazing experience, but then what happened? Yeah. So I came back, I felt, you know, I inevitably fell back into all the old patterns of work and get, ended up working back at Sky and things like that in a freelance basis. But by this time, my relationship with Claire was getting sort of stronger and stronger. Um, we ended up um, moving to Oxford, which is where we live now. Why did you move to Oxford? Well, she was there, basically. And, ah. uh, and actually, working in West London, it, to some extent, it's easier to get there from Oxford than it is. M4 or something? Uh, M40, and then M40. just around the ring road, and then you go. So, because I was out by um, Osterley, so right out by Heathrow. Uh, God, we're so old. We're talking about motorways now. Yeah. Motorway <laughs> numbers. <laughs> yeah. So you want to take the uh, the M4? <laughs> um, <laughs> it's inevitable. Don't fight it, mate. Don't fight it. <laughs> uh, uh, yeah. So we ended up in Oxford, a lovely city. Um, was it a nice departure from London? Because you've been in London oh, for a good God. 10, yeah, 15 I, I, years. I've been there a while. I couldn't go back now. You couldn't pay me to go back to London now. Mm. Uh, Oxford's great because you're, you're, you're only a short drive or bus drive or whatever it is away from or train journey from uh, from London. So you can nip in, nip out, and it's all fairly fairly accessible still. So I'm not miles away from all the good things of London, um, but I don't have to live with that daily grind um, yeah. that is so kind of soul-destroying. Mm. For me, for me. I, some people thrive on it. I, I, I certainly don't. Um, so you so you moved out to Oxford. Were you were you still working back in London at that point? Yeah, so I was still working in London, and kind of uh, I'm but I'm and ahhing about what I wanted to do. I, I knew I wanted to do something different, and it sort of turned out um, my my wife's aunt was a kind of careers advisor type person, mm -hmm. and um, so I went and had a chat with her, and we did I forget what the name of these tests are, but they they were these tests where you just have a Q and A, uh, uh, an aptitude sort of stuff. Yeah, and it tells you what your personality type. Oh, is. what's it called? Yeah. Uh, Myers Briggs or something. Yeah, something like that. Something right, like. Right, go on. And I was a bit skeptical, but then at the end, of the the upshot of all this process is they give you a list of jobs that you know are suitable for someone of your personality type. Mm -hmm. And of the top five, I'd I'd already been look I'd already looked at about uh, three or f yeah three or four of them. Um, no, three can you remember what they were? Can you remember what? They were? Uh, so it was like paramedic. Um, uh, so specific, isn't it? Yeah, yeah tree so surgery. So specific. What a great tree test. You know, tree surgery, and um, I think outward bound sort of thing was another one. Great. Um, but the top two, the top one was teacher. Okay. Like. Fuck that. <laughs> I, I don't care if it's giving me There's no way. Yeah, I'm but good. you've always loved learning. You've always been a learned sort of person. Well, yeah, I mean, yeah, I like to I like to keep updating the old uh, data banks, but um, I, I didn't, I certainly didn't fancy going into mainstream teaching, put it like, mm. as it is, I have ended up teaching, but just in a different kind of way. Um but the there's number two was physiotherapist, oh. and I thought, okay, right, I hadn't even I hadn't even conceived of anything you know along those lines. Um, but I thought, but it's okay. all sort of helping other people or helping other things, basically. Well, that that was that was a big part of what I what I wanted to do. Um, I definitely wanted some a job that fulfilled me more, but also added added to other people's lives. You know. Mm -hmm. Um, I, I wanted, I wanted to, I wanted to do something for other people. That was, that was, that was an important part of it. 
Somebody told me recently that um, the def their definition of suffering was thinking about themselves uh, or thinking about themselves too much. And they said yeah. their theory yeah. of life was that the more you think about yourself, the more you suffer. Yeah. The less you think about yourself and about others, the less you suffer. So the more happy you are. Yeah, I mean, it's entirely true. The more, the more you're wrapped up in your your own ego, uh, just uh, you can't see the wood for the trees. Um, and you know, you've got to you've got to reverse that 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 gaze. So you're looking more outwardly, um, and recognizing your connection with everyone else as well. You know, yeah. you're not this individuated. I mean, you are, but you, you're greater than that as well. You know, you're not just this little lump of separated atomized uh, stuff that has this consciousness running around in it and that's it you're connected to literally everything and everybody else and recognizing that is, is a good way to bring yourself out of this this uh, 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 unhealthy introspection and um, egotistical funk yeah abso absolutely beautifully put well done um, so uh, yeah so that was very much part of it um, and I was looking at. Um, okay, so number one, number one was what was, was number one? Number one was teacher. And number two was. Number two was physiotherapist. And so where did you go from there? So I thought, all right, physiotherapists. I'm not. I don't want to be a teacher, but I've looked at these other ones. They look promising, but let's check out um, physiotherapists. So um, I started, you know, googling and whatever. And as I was doing that, I came across um, osteopathy. Um, I don't know if you've ever heard of osteopathy. I've heard um, of it, but I, I'll probably be pretty confused in my definition of it. Something yeah, to do with the back. Okay, yeah, that's the that's perhaps the public perception. Um, it's not entirely accurate. It's a it's a, a manual therapy would be a good way to sort of describe it, um, and it's a sort of philosophy of health. Uh, okay, it goes back to this um, fairly sort of visionary fellow, round about the time of the American Civil War. He was out out in the Wild West, sort of thing. So just after the Civil War, who and was he? His name was Andrew Taylor Still. Okay, that's a fascinating character. Right. Uh, so and he invented osteopathy as such, he, he, as it is known today. Yeah, he, he, he developed the profession, and he was, he was a physician. He was a doctor originally, and he served, you know, and he was just, he lost three kids to cerebral meningitis, you know. God. You know, just in one day, they just all died, you know. It was just horrendous. And, no uh, way. And, you know, the life was obviously very different out there, frontier. Um, and even then, you know, the sort of the mainstream medicine of the time was pretty barbaric, Um and so he was, he was intensely dissatisfied, and he said, there has to be a better way. And he was hanging out with all these Indians um, out on the frontier, and they, they, you know, they had these kind of ways of manipulating the body to um, restore function to joints and, and muscles and so on. And he started to extrapolate from that and, you know, uh, added to it with his, his, physical, you know, his mainstream medical knowledge. And he put together this kind of actually quite deeply spiritual as well um, me, you know, philosophy of health, how to find and maintain um, health in the human body. Mm -hmm. And he was, a lot of what he was talking about is taken for granted now, you know, in terms of the sort of uh, the homeostatic nature of, um, uh, by what, you know, the balance that the body naturally achieves or is always seeking to achieve internally. Um, in, in terms of what? In terms of diet or in terms of just general well-being? Well, or? Um, your, your, your body has a, a, a natural process called homeostasis where it's constantly seeking to achieve um, a healthy balance in terms of the physiological processes in your body you know, at, okay. a, at a cellular level. Equilibrium. Uh, yeah, exactly. And he kind, of, he kind of understood that and he understood how to um, help promote that um, to allow that system to thrive wow. and he used it you know primarily through through manual therapy but he you know he talked about diet and he talked about you know spiritual sort of you know awareness and connection and all these things and you know he put it all together into a very holistic view mm -hmm. of health that perhaps you know even today mainstream medicine doesn't quite understand you know right. I'm not anti mainstream at all but they can be a bit um, uh, sort of materialistic, bit too materialistic, and a bit reductionist about how they approach health. And do you think, you know, do you think that we? I'm probably going off on a bit of a tangent here mm. because it's such a fascinating uh, conversation. But um, mm. do you think that we? we I, I've spoken recently to somebody about the idea that antidepressants, for example, are thrown around left, right, and centre willy nilly. Yeah. And it's 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 a, it's a bit of a um, it's a bit of a touchy subject with some because obviously mm. some people feel that they absolutely require antidepressants yeah. in their life but from yeah. the outside looking in it seems to me that you know emotional health is obviously so so important but it should mm. be gained through or it should at least initially some people should attempt to gain it through 
healthy living and through yeah. exercise and things like that rather yeah. than just you know chemicals absolutely there, there well there's there is a general global problem with over medication and over prescription um that's a kind of a side issue um not that prescription drugs aren't good when you need them boy do you need them um mm. but they are overscribed people take way too many of them and that in itself is you know um over medicating is also dangerous you know it's just as dangerous as um as as um you know any kind of uh, alternative therapy sure. um so yeah and and often in some cases yeah there, there's you know there's there's very serious uh, issues that the people have to contend with and they really do need these medications mm, but a lot of, of people you know as you say with with a with a change in lifestyle a change in approach you know they could they could possibly at least reduce their dosage and maybe even get themselves off antidepressants and actually meditation is is showing you know good signs and good scientific evidence that it, it's a very good way to a very good alternative way of, of, of dealing with a lot of these problems um, or helping people to reduce or get off um, things like antidepressants. Yeah, it's really interesting. There seems to be a sort of a scientific addition, a scientific supplement as part of, of the evolution of yoga these days. And it yeah. seems to be getting more credence because of, I mean, Headspace, for example, there's loads of science involved in Headspace. Mm. I'm sure you've heard of the Headspace yeah. app, and that's one that I use. Mm. And, um, and I think that it adds credibility, it adds cachet, doesn't it, to, to yeah, the whole idea absolutely. of yoga when you get the science attached. Yeah, well, there's, um, there's a kind of a secular brand of meditation now called mindfulness. Um, okay, yep. And this was developed by um, mainly by a chap called John Kabat-Zinn in the um, uh, kind of about the 70s, I think it all kicked off. And it's, you know, it's become hugely popular um, because, because it's incredibly effective and, and there's more and more evidence um, backing it up. But what these guys did is they, they essentially, I mean, it's a bit more complicated than this, but they essentially took Buddhist philosophy and, and meditation techniques, stripped them of all their kind of um, cultural iconography and spirituality, and just presented it as a, a, a secular and scientific treatment for, evidence-based treatment for, um, kind of mental health, you know, stress and anxiety and, and depression and things like that. And that was packaged as mindfulness. Yeah, and they called it okay. mindfulness, which I think is a translation of a Tibetan um, Buddhist word anyway. Anyway, um, and so when you, and a lot of the science that's been done has been done looking at this, this, type, of, uh, this type of meditation. So it really opened it up to the scientific world to sort of unclench themselves a little bit when it came to things like, you know, meditation, <laughs> and, you know, and just start looking at it a bit more, you know, uh, openly. Um, because there are, I mean, again, I'm not anti-science or anti, um, uh, you know, um, any, uh, that, that, that way of looking at the world. But there, you know, there are dogmas and and, and um, um, in, in in the world of science, and there are people are can be closed-minded. They're not all, you know, brilliantly, openly, open-mindedly skeptical about everything. We're we're all human beings, and everyone has their um, their hang-ups and their, the areas they don't want to go into, and they, they won't come. You know, and that's the same for scientists as it is as it is for anybody else. I, I, you know, I quite simply put, I mean, for me, I think it was Howard Marks who said, um, for me, outlook is more important than circumstances. And I think that, you know, when you think about that, then your outlook is so much to do with how you view the world, how positive you are emotionally, yeah. psychologically. Yeah, absolutely. What you what you put out is what inevitably will come back to you. Mm. Um, and, you know, what, what you, I mean, you know, there's a lot of talk about the sort of the law of attraction now and all this kind of stuff. Um, and, you know, I think we, we all individually and collectively um, kind of create the world around us. And we're all, as I said already, we're all connected in that, in that in, and on a very deep level. And if, if we can all just um, get, on, get in line and, you know, send out a more positive, healthy and vibrant outlook on the world, I mean, I think we'd see significant changes in, in the world around us. A domino effect. Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, a lot of the problems we see today are, are all wrapped up in in, in um, fear um, and you know fear is what really drives the ego it really really causes us to be wrapped up in ourselves and you know as we were talking about earlier just you know so concerned about us and what's going on with us in our own little worlds and our own little minds and being terrified of what's going on out there you know so and, true and it just so, so it, it drives a lot of the problems I think that we, we, we see today in the world 
So yeah, absolutely. So, anyways, you you talked about osteopathy, and yeah. I, I've got to get to, to you becoming um, <laughs> a yoga teacher. But it's, it, this right. is fascinating. It's so informative. It's okay. beautiful, my friend. You've ex right. you've exceeded all of my expectations <laughs> or hopes already. Oh well, that's good. I'm happy to have replied. Um, so yeah, so osteopathy. So I uh, I immediately again. I was drawn to osteopathy. I was drawn to the philosophy. You liked the story. You you liked the history oh, and the story. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And um, I was like, okay, well, where can I learn to do this? And it was like, oh, look, there's a course in Oxford. You know, at Oxford Brooks University were doing it. And I thought, well, there you go. It's right on my doorstep. This is, you know, this is the universe telling me to get on with it, do it, you nice. know. So I did. Um, and uh, I trained to be an osteopath. That took about five years. Um uh, and then uh, popped out. What, the what sort of course was that? Was that a degree course? Or? Yeah, yeah. So it's a, you come out with a BSc honours in osteopathy. That's uh, amazing. That's a brave thing to do because you would have been in your thirties at that time, yeah, right? I was, I was, yeah, I was just uh, just thirty. Um, amazing. And, and uh, was getting married and having kids. <laughs> wow. So that, that was a, that was a crazy few years. That was a really crazy few years. Tough. Um, yeah, yeah. Probably the hardest period of my life, personally. Wow. Uh, and um, not without its hiccups, but we, you know, we all got through it. Um, and uh, so, yeah, so uh, after that... Um, Were you enlightened I, by the course? It taught me so much. It taught me so much about myself, you know, the human body, obviously, health. I met some really brilliant people. Um, learned, I learned so much in that time. It was and it was an, the course was in osteopathy, sorry, just to remind yeah, me. Yeah, okay, go, the course go on, was in we have lectures in pathology, physiology, osteopathic philosophy and practice. Um, then we, you know, eventually you, you then have to do clinic hours. So you'd start as some sort of, sort of quaking, <laughs> yeah. quaking first year osteopath in the corner and slowly <laughs> kind of work your way up to a quaking uh, fifth year osteopath having to treat um, patients and, and, and things like Amazing. that. Amazing. And was it, is it a really technical and scientific course? It is, it is. I mean, they... they we cover all the same grounds up to a certain point that mainstream doctors do. Um, they they do do longer studies and, and cover other other areas. But with regard to the anatomy and physiology physiology of the body, we you know we, we study to a similar level. Um, and you know, our, in fact, our knowledge of anatomy and physiology, or certainly anatomy, is probably better because we use it every day. You know, mm -hmm. always working with the human body and um, you know. You're always thinking about it and thinking in those terms. So we, I, there are not going to be many people who know more about um, human anatomy than than an osteopath. Okay. Um, you know, surgeons and. You so must on. give unbelievable massages. <laughs> Your lucky wife. Yeah. Well, it's one. Of those, it's one of those things, isn't it? I, you know, I don't ask her to come home and, and teach a, a class of kids at the end of the day, but uh, <laughs> yeah, you get through the door, she's like, "Oh, my back!" And like, oh. <laughs> But no, no, I do, I do treat, I treat all of the family. But it's, if, I, I have to learn to judge when they're just kind of, you know, they're they're feeling a little bit. They want a bit of a massage, or do they actually have some? Are in need of uh, immediate attention? Otherwise, I spend my entire time just working on my family. Um, <laughs> but um, yeah, so osteopathy. Uh, so then I got into practice, and almost immediately. Almost immediately, you, you notice uh, as an osteopath, or I noticed, there's so many, so many of my patients um, were suffering from stress-related disorders. So and, more psychological than physical, perhaps? Well, the two are fundamentally inter interrelated. Sure. You can't separate them. Um, whatever your mental state, it will be reflected in your body in all okay. kinds, right down to the cellular level and possibly even beyond. So, wow. Um, you so know, your brain can actually cause your body pain? Oh, absolutely. The brain pain doesn't technically exist. It's a three-dimensional representation in your brain. It's wow. a creation of your brain. We can cut, you know, with the right drugs, you cut off the signals and it, it just goes, isn't it? You know, um, and more and more, what we're learning is that it's not just related to the to the extent of the damage to the tissue. So, say, you know, you step on a, yeah, you know, you step on a tack. You know, there is there is a, a pathway that will send a signal saying pain, 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 all the way up to your brain. And will roughly be commensurate with, you know, the level of tissue damage. Right. Um, but there are other much more complex elements at play, especially when it gets to like a chronic pain or something like that. Um, and we know that your your brain modulates your perception of pain to an enormous degree. 
You know, you can you can scan somebody's uh, scan somebody's knee, for instance, and you might have two patients. One's got virtually no arthritis in it, but is in absolute agony. Right. And another person is riddled with arthritis, but in no pain at all. And it's the the, the body is incredibly able to um, either amplify the effects if, if your mind um, becomes stressed and anxious all any sensations of pain you feel will become amplified um, but you can also become habituated to pain and literally you, you the, sig the signals stop stop sending you know your body just learns to ignore them that's fascinating my, you know, i'll give you an example a perfect example my mother has been suffering with um what is has been described as atypical face pain for the last decade okay and a psychologist said to her a pain specialist said to her i can bring your pain levels down from nine to one just by talking to you and she would not have it at all <laughs> and she refused to go and she has to this day refused to go because no. she and, and but i think it's you know it's 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 a really common thing isn't it people yeah. feel yeah. like you you're saying to me that i'm mad that i'm insane but that i'm not in yeah, pain yeah, when yeah. actually they are really in pain but they don't they don't make that link between the brain and physical no, pain no exactly it's not that you're making it up to you it's completely real completely mm. real but it's and it is it is real you know yeah. at all it's no it's no different from uh, the pain from a, a cut or anything like that really it's it's um but it's because we see ourselves as these kind of material robotic machines and mm. that you can't fix a machine by talking to it it mm. has to be repaired it has to have something put into it or taken yeah, out of it sure you know, and yes, those things do make a difference to the human body and human health, and sometimes massively so. But by ignoring the potential of the mind, you know, it's it's just it's low hanging fruit. You know, we can really have a huge effect on the body. Amazing. Um, you know, by working with the mind um, to help to help improve all kinds of things. Um, so, so fascinating, and I really will. I really want to play this podcast to my mother once it's published, and maybe she'll <laughs> finally relent. Do do say hello from me when you see her. Uh, and, uh, and and your dad, how's your old man? Is he alright? He's great as ever. Yeah. Absolutely brilliant. Low maintenance, no bother. Oh, what a man! He's a, a man. he's got a great positive outlook on on life. He's cracked it. He's cracked it, mate. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> Um, yeah, so go on. So, uh, so you started treating people, yeah, and you were finding that people you were treating people who um, came to you with physical problems, but you realised quite soon that a lot of them, a lot of their problem was, you know, psychological, yeah, emotional. Yeah, absolutely. You know, most the funny enough, you know, people often ask, say to us as osteopaths, "Oh, but you speak, you treat loads of sports injuries," but we don't really. The 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 most common type of person we see will be um, lower back and upper back pain, and usually as a result from being sat in front of a computer for right. eight hours a day, and then mm -hmm. sitting in a car either side of that, and then sitting down at home either side of that. Right. Um, that is the biggest problem that we see. And co going along with that is, is the stress and anxiety um, that I think modern life is is laying on so 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 many people who are mm. living and working in these 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 kind of offices and, and at these chained to these desks, you know, human health is maintained by movement. Of course, and it's irrefutable, isn't it? I mean, you Absolutely. look at the evolution of modern society, Absolutely. and you see that you know the only things that are fit about our bodies these days are our fingers, because they're yeah. the only things that are moving <laughs> yeah. every day. Absolutely. Yeah, somebody told me recently that a doctor, I think it was, told me recently that you could solve the obesity problem in America over the next few generations by simply removing the chairs from classrooms, Absolutely. so people have to stand up. Yeah. Because and, and offices, and offices, and offices, of course, yeah. And this is, but it is, it is starting to change. People are starting to wake up to this. But um, you know, this is, this is, um, but it's movement of mind as well. Movement of mind sure. is important. You know, you got to keep, you know, taking, bringing on new information. You got to keep learning. You got to keep changing. You can't get stuck in your ways, and because that stasis, whether it be of the mind or the body, is is what leads to ultimately to to poor health. Okay. So. Yeah, I've kind of lost the thread of what I was saying there. Um, we were talking about the importance of, yeah, we were talking about how many people came to you and you realised yeah. after analysing that they had, you know, emotional, psychological problems as yeah. much as the physical pain. Yeah, exactly. And, and the two dovetail, yeah? So I was always saying, basically, I'd had my own problems with stress and anxiety when I was training to be an osteopath and, you know, I had kids suddenly arrive on the horizon and, uh, you know, it was... Such a, a challenge, no money, blah, 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 blah. I, I kind of had a little mini mini breakdown. I mean, it wasn't yeah. a breakdown by any stretch of the imagination, really, but I, I did struggle. 
And um, I'd got into meditation then, and it had been just... Was it prescribed to you, or...? No, or you... no, no, I kind of... Um, well, like, you know, like most people, I'd always been in... You know, it's difficult not to look at meditation and think, wow, that's pretty cool, you know? And I think I'd, always, I'd always felt that, and always meant to learn to meditate, but never got around to it, you know, as usual. Um, um, but my father-in-law had been a long-term meditator, and this is a guy I greatly admire and have a lot of time for, and I'm respectful of what he's achieved in his life, um, whilst being a pretty cool dude as well. Um, right. And uh, uh, he said, look, you know, try meditation. So I said, all right, um, okay. And uh, his, his sister as well was a meditator, and she sent me a book. Um, on it, and I, so I, I sorry, sorry, I'm so yeah. sorry, and I really hope you're, you're carrying on with the thread. But had was there any meditation um, study during your course, your, deg your degree course? No, it wasn't. A, meditation and mindfulness hadn't exploded at this point. Yeah, it, it was still it, very it left was, field. Yeah, it was still, it was coming, it was coming. Okay, but carry on. It hadn't, hadn't quite taken off, so no, we, we didn't. But um, there were lots of people I spoke to who, you know, in, in that period, who understood you know, health from that perspective, that the mind was an important part. So that had helped inform my decision. Um, so uh, I read this book and I started to meditate. What was the book? Uh, it was How to Meditate, but I think his name was Lawrence Lashan. It's quite old, it's from the 70s. Okay. Um, he's a psychotherapist. So it was a kind of a, a non-spiritual uh, approach, um, which was probably what I needed to hear at that time. Um and very useful. Um, I think there are better books out there for um, people who want to um, get started. But it, it was it was good for me. It was good for mm -hmm. me. Um, a good way in. Yeah, and I kind of undenied for a while, and I, I meditated on and off, and I, you know, I'd, I'd get really into it, and then I'd fall off the wagon, and I'd get back into it. But I always came back to it, and I kept going, and eventually, um, well, what, what what happened was. I was seeing all these patients and they were all, you know, stressed up to the eyeballs. And I was telling them all, you know, you guys, you know, you really need to go and learn to meditate. It's brilliant. It'll really help you um, with these, these problems that you're having. Uh, and they would say, well, where do I go and learn to meditate? And I'd say, well, I don't know. Um, Lawrence Lashan, of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. I might recommend a book or something like that. So I started to look around and there was the option seemed to be, um, uh, you know, the local Buddhist temple or group or you could go to um uh the the, the local mind mindfulness center but they you know that they, they, they were quite in their own ways they're both quite intense places for someone mm. who may not get along with the philosophies that underpin those two sure. sort of approaches baptism of fire yeah absolutely it can be it can be you know it can you know freak you out if someone starts chanting you know at a buddhist temple or likewise mm. if you go to a you know mindfulness and they're you know, talking about you know depression and all this kind of stuff it's a bit heavy sure. um and i think what i was looking for was something more just for the you know lifestyle based a bit more relaxed but informal you know, yeah yeah exactly so i was like okay hang on there's a there's an opportunity here um i can i can learn to teach it and i can teach my patients um Amazing. so i i started looking around for places to learn to teach and i came across this fantastic institution called the british school of meditation and they're based in Cheltenham, so they weren't, again, weren't far away. Um, and they teach experienced meditators to teach meditation. Right. And uh, But one of their criteria was that, you know, you have to be a regular meditator. And mm. I was still kind of back and forth with it. I might do like two or three months solidly, and then I'd, you know, I'd fall off the wagon again. Um, and I, so I said, to her, okay, right, give yourself a year, meditate every day for a year. And if you can do that, sign up go and learn to teach meditation and add it to your sort of repertoire. Mm. Um, and that's when things really took off in all kinds of ways. You know, my, my, my practice, my meditation practice, you know, I really, I stuck to my task. Um, my meditation practice got really, you know, deeper and I got so much out of it. Um, I went off and learned, went to this course, met some more amazing people, um, learned so much stuff. Um, got a qualification to teach meditation, um, not a full-blown degree, just a diploma, um, right. and came back and, and started started teaching it. And You're uh, qualified up to the eyeballs now. <laughs> well, no, I, mean, I, I don't know. You look at some people and they, you know, PhD this and MD that and whatever, and I, I'm, I'm very much uh, <laughs> not in that, that uh, 
at that level. But I'm, but I'm, I'm all right. But I must ask you, I must ask you, because you, you've talked about meditation you know, broadly, but was there a particular type of practice that got you got you helped you become more committed and what sort of what sort of uh, meditation do you do what sort of what would you advise what would you recommend um okay right well there's quite a few uh, elements there but i mean yes what what the one that kind of really uh literally resonated with me was when i first heard singing bowls now i don't know if you've ever come across these things is this uh, some kind of tm no. Uh, no, I mean, it, it's, it's prevalent. I think they're very common in sort of Buddhist traditions. Um, uh, oh, so they're actual bells? It's like a bowl, and you kind uh, of hit it, hit it with a, a, a hammer, and it goes... Oh, OK, yeah, yeah. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> Amazing. And I remember just for the first time just being utterly transfixed by these by these sounds and it, it were you at a class were you at a class yeah, it, was, you... it was in a group and they, they they were doing it and it just shut everything down and my, my mind stopped worrying and i was just oh, i was in this beautiful space listening to these sounds so, so clearly Amazing. clearly that that particular type of meditation just listening was 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 ideal for me but it gives you some kind of anchor, doesn't it? Because I suppose when, you're le when your mind is set, let free, like I do headspace, I try to do headspace every day, okay? Mm -hmm. And I have found some real clarity and some real tranquility from it. But if I've got a busy mind, if there are things that are bothering me, if I'm, I've been through a difficult period recently and I find it, I'm finding it really difficult to find that silence in my mind. Yeah. Yeah. But if you've got an anchor, something to hold on to, like the bowl sound, for example, or transcendental meditation where you repeat a mantra, yeah, maybe that right. would be a be better way in. They, they, they can give you, you know, some people need something to do mm. yeah, um, to, to get them into the meditation. So mantras are great because you actually, you're actually doing something, you know, right. and that, yep. that, that's okay. But, you know, struggling is okay too. You know, that's part of the process. You're not, you know, you, you're doing your best. Keep going. Persevere. Let, if the mind is crazy, that's fine. Just observe mm. it. Just mm. watch it. Let it be. Don't try and fight it. Don't try and overcome it. Mm -hmm. um, and just be with it, and it'll it'll work itself out. Just watch your thoughts, those crazy thoughts whirring around in your head. Um, just learn to sit there and watch them come and watch them go, and try not to attach to them or sort of follow them. Okay, but if I you feel do, like I'm being hypnotised as we speak. <laughs> it's wonderful. You've got such a calming tones and 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 slightly assertive as well. Wonderfully I, assertive. I, I, I felt myself dropping into my my mind. It was amazing. <laughs> Um, but yeah, but again, you know, if you find yourself getting carried away, that's okay. The, the moment you realized your attention has wandered, that is a moment of mindfulness. That is a moment of presence. That's brilliant. And that's what you've got to notice and be and see, oh yeah, I'm doing that. That's great. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It. Just keep doing it. And you strengthen your muscle of attention by doing that. And, you know, as you do that more and more, you know, you, you, you learn to just watch rather than follow. That is the crux of it, I think. That's the practical crux of it. Because, you know, when I was trying to find out about meditation, trying to learn about it, I was, it took me a long time to work out what it actually was, to crystallize what it actually was, mm, mm. Or, or what the practical applications were. But then I realized, after doing it for a few months, that there was something in daily life which normally would have got me annoyed, and I was annoyed or stressed for a second. Yeah. And then I managed to pull myself back from it because I was aware that I was being annoyed or stressed for something ridiculously trivial. And at that point, I realized the practical application of meditation, that it, it helps you to be able to switch on and off your emotions yeah. a bit better. And you just, you don't automatically react. You, yeah, you yeah, yeah, yeah. You moment to just go, oh, yeah, I'm angry. Okay, I don't have to do right. about it. I'm just feeling angry. That's, That's okay. right, yeah. You That's might have right. reason to be angry, you know, but you don't necessarily then have to act upon it. And uh, I think mindful meditation mindfulness gives you that space to just go, okay, yeah, you know, and what, let it go. Yeah, absolutely. I cut you off as usual, but you were telling me about the bowls, and I'd love you to try and explain, if you can, about the bowls and about other yeah other techniques which you use, and maybe a specific technique which you could tell okay. me to, to explain to me, which I can start using. Okay, all right. Um, so, well, the, the the bowls work beautifully for me, and listening to um, resonating sounds like that work beautifully. I mean, that gets us into this whole idea of you know vibration and and. You know, that's 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 a whole other tangent, which perhaps we we shouldn't go into just yet. Oh, I'd love you to though. <laughs> no, I've, I've kind of uh, let, let me let me, let me right. stick with the um, uh, the techniques. Uh, Four-hour conversation alert. <laughs> 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 
Go on, go on. I do. I do. Uh, unfortunately, my daughter is ill and she's at home. Oh no. So I will. I will. Might have to periodically in that no. part of conversation go and check she's still alive. But um, we'll have a part two some other time. Yeah, it's been yeah, wonderful definitely, already. Definitely. definitely. Um, okay. So techniques. Uh, that, well, it's personal preference. It's so personal. There's no one way. There's no one path. There's no one perfect um, technique. But what you see when you look across all the various different schools of uh, meditation and the different wisdom traditions, and they all have um, very similar techniques that they use, that they employ to help achieve this state of conscious awareness where you're sort of present in the, in the moment in a, in a non-judgmental and accepting way. And for me, the basic ones are really good. You know, like just watching your breath. It's, mm -hmm. it's brilliant. It's beautiful. Just watching yourself breathe, the sensations of breathing. You know, you, you focus on perhaps your nose and feeling the, the air coming in and out of your, your nose or your mouth. You might feel your ribs, you know, expanding and contracting, your, um, your tummy as it rises and falls. And you just sit with your breath. And the beauty of the breath is it's always there. It's there for you whenever you need it. Anytime, never underestimate the benefit of a single mindful breath. Right. You know, when you're having a shit time, mm. just give yourself that moment to just focus on the sensations of breathing, take a deep breath in, and as you breathe out, just relax. Try and let any stress or tension just gently flow out of your body. But if you can't, that's okay. You don't have to force it or fight it. You know, if, if, if you're feeling stressed and anxious and you can't get rid of it, the more you fight it, the worse it'll be. So don't don't try and force any of these things. But yeah, working with the breath is is is, is fantastic and, and so simple. So mm -hmm. simple. And I And how how long would you go for? What would be a good a good uh, time period to, to do meditation for in order to feel the positive uh, effects? I I think that's just an arbitrary, you know, they talk about sure. 20 minutes twice a day, but it's a completely arbitrary to see, you know, they've drawn the line in the sand. Like anything, the more you do, the better, the more you'll get out of it. Um, you know, um, was it Mahatma Gandhi, I think, who sort of said, I've got a particularly busy day today, so I'm going to meditate for two hours instead of one, you know. Right. Uh, Great. Uh, Wonderful. So, you know, um, People think they're too busy to meditate, don't they? But that's oh, why they need to meditate. Yeah, no, exactly, exactly. But but for, for people like that, you're better off starting with five minutes every day or three times a week. Do what you can achieve. Don't try and, you know, it's like trying to run a marathon having never done any training. Mm. If you suddenly leap into 40 minutes of meditation every day, your brain's just going to go, well, your mind's just going to say, no, I can't do yeah, it. Yeah. Um, so for beginners... I generally advocate that they start small and build up gradually. So start with a simple technique that works for you, that appeals to you, and do it for five minutes. If you can, once a day. If not, three times. Everyone's got five minutes, um, at least three times a week, where they can sit and meditate. And you just start... to put that time aside. Just to put yeah, that time aside, because you're never going to feel the benefits if you don't put that time aside. Even if you don't feel any benefits from doing it to start with, then at least no, you're putting the time aside. Yeah. And I would also say, give yourself time to establish a regular practice. If you're kind of expecting yourself to nail it in the first week, it's not going to happen for, for, for a lot of people. It didn't for me. It took me years. Um, and... You kind of build, if you you know, you build it up gradually. It'd be like if you were getting into yoga um, or into some form of exercise, a new exercise plan. You know, going to the gym. Say, you know, if you if you went to the gym and just did a 90-minute workout, cold, having not exercised for a year, you're going to break something. Um, but if you then if you started with a you know a half-hour session of fairly light exercise a couple of times a week and then you gradually build it up bit by bit you know within a few months you could be doing 90 minute intensive sessions you know but you've got to build yourself up to it so that's that's kind of a top tip definitely for people who are struggling um to make meditation um, a regular part of their life don't be afraid to do little and often at the outset 
Really good point. Absolutely. And yeah, mm. as I said, I just think, you know, if you don't put that time apart, if you don't put the time aside, you'll always be thinking, oh, you know, what are the benefits of yoga? But <laughs> I, sometimes I get 30 seconds in 10 minutes where I, I really do feel as if my mind is calm and, and tranquil. But then just that 30 seconds is quite empowering. The 30 seconds is fantastic. And don't don't underestimate the benefit of the of the other nine minutes and 30 seconds, you know, or however long you were meditating for, um, uh, because that's all part of it as well. That is, you know, that as I said, that moment of mindfulness when you're noticing your mind wandering off, you know, that's that's part of it too. Um, the, the the struggle, the battle is, you know, just being being disciplined and and, and sticking with it. That's, mm. you know, these are all important elements. Um, just the routine of it, I suppose, you know, and that that sort of uh, transcends or, or is uh, you can you could sort of apply that to so many areas of life, couldn't you? Just finding uh, routines is so good for a positive, successful life. Once it's established, it's it's easy to maintain because it's there. Um, but I think it also quite helps to develop a kind of a, a relatively free flowing approach once you have established it. You know, you can say, okay, I'm doing my my meditation on a uh, six o'clock in the morning or eight o'clock in the evening or whenever it is you're doing it um but oh, yeah, it's lunchtime i've got 10 minutes the hell i'll, I'll have a meditate you know just mm. stick one in there why not um if you get an opportunity grab it and that takes the pressure off you you know you kind of you've done your meditation for the day you don't have to worry about your, you know uh, you know because if meditation becomes a source of stress What's, yeah. What's the point? You know. Yeah, so <laughs> it, true. There's it, it, just no point if you. Oh God! Oh God! I haven't meditated yeah, today. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, what is the point of that? That's uh, that's that's not helping anybody. Um, and meditation isn't for everybody. You know, not everyone's gonna. It's not gonna work for everybody. Then there are many other ways to achieve peace of mind and um, presence in your life without meditation. Mm. Um, meditation can be a trap if you if you're not careful. It becomes this source of stress or feeding your ego. And it's all about you and what you're achieving and what, you know, where am I getting to and my progress. And instead of just being about being you, you know, and just being present with who you are. Um, so there are there are traps involved with meditation as well that we, we have to be careful with. And a lot of it is it goes back to that sort of need to, to push and, 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 and achieve and, and um you know, be up with the Joneses, you know, my mate, what's his name? He meditates twice a day. So I better meditate twice a day. You know, mm. you do what, what's right for you and, um, and don't, don't force or push any of this stuff. Yeah, absolutely. And okay. So what I was going to say was, um, I'm going to, I'm going to wrap it up very soon. Cause I know you're a busy man, but, um, so is there a, a book, I know you mentioned uh, Lawrence Deshan is, is your way in, but and lots of people that I've spoken to talk about Eckhart Tolle as well as a yeah. great person to read. Yeah. Is there a book, a, a book that you can suggest to recommend to people as a really great, inspiring Ooh. read about Buddhism, about meditation, or just a book in general that you'd like to um, enlighten people with? I always ask people what, what their favorite book and favorite yeah. film are. Um, for me, um, one of the books that had a profound effect on me, and not not solely about meditation, but just about all the big questions that we ask ourselves, was this fabulous book, uh, it's quite short, um, called The Monk and the Philosopher. Oh. No. And it's, oh, it's, it's brilliant. It's about this um, father and son. And the father is this famous French philosopher, mm -hmm. and his son was a a prominent young French scientist who gave, who sort of rejected that particular worldview and became a Buddhist monk and is now a, a very famous Buddhist monk. His name is Matthew Rickard. Matthew oh, yeah, Matthew Rickard, Matthew yeah, yeah. Rickard, yeah. Um, well, what's, his, what's his famous book called, Matthew Rickard? Uh, oh, I can't remember. Happiness, something to do with happiness, I think. Okay, yeah. Um, but it's a conversation between him and his father mm -hmm. um, about, as I said, all these big questions that we ask ourselves. And, you know, it's so beautiful on, on so many levels. You, a, a, you've got the sort of the Buddhist perspective versus the, the sort of more Western uh, scientific perspective. Um, but you've got this father and son issue going on and this, this, this you know, this, be this beautiful sort of relationship they have, even though, you know, I'm sure um, Matthew's father probably when his son said, oh, no, I'm giving up all these, uh, you know, so, this great scientific career to go and live in Tibet was probably head in his hands going, no. <laughs> What are you doing? Mm. Um, but yet they, you know, they come together and they sit and they have this conversation. It's just a transcript of their conversation, 
um, and it's absolutely brilliant. And it's very touching, very touching. The Monk and the Philosopher. The Monk and the Philosopher, yeah. That sounds absolutely, what a great reference. That's absolutely brilliant. It's exactly the sort of reference I'm looking for. <laughs> well, and it, you know, it's very moving. It's moving and enlightening. And, um, and, and I think um, em, uh, actually emphasizes the kind of conversations we should be having on either side of the whatever argument we're having, you know, uh, political, philosophical, scientific, whatever the, the arguments we're having, they're open to each other's point of view and willing to listen. And, and it's it's lovely. It's really good. That's marvellous. And a final question. Um, <clears throat> Favourite film or documentary or documentary that has inspired or, you know, give me some kind of film or, or doco reference. Uh, I think uh, recently the one that's, as always, blown me away was Planet Earth. Um, ah, yeah, marvellous. Yeah, mind-boggling. Uh, sat watching with the family, all of us transfixed, loving every minute of it. The guy, uh, Attenborough, is uh, an absolute master. May he never um, die. Indeed, well, he won't, he won't. So it's fine. <laughs> That's fact, it's com you've heard it first. Absolutely, he'll be fine. <laughs> just, a, just watch the news tomorrow, he'll be like, oh, God. <laughs> as, um, as an illustration of your general altruism in your mm. life, um, these days. I think I got a note from Facebook this morning saying it was your birthday and you haven't mentioned that once. <laughs> well, indeed, it is my birthday, yes. Happy yes. birthday, my friend. And I feel yeah. honoured that you've taken the time on your birthday to speak to me. Uh, I wouldn't have, nothing I'd rather have done. It's been lovely to catch up. Yeah, really amazing. And I shall give you a shout later, but thank you so much for your time and, um, and thank you so much for your pearls of wisdom. Oh, let's do it again. I love it. I love it. Without a shade of a doubt. <laughs> Take care, my friend. All right, you too, mate. Love to the family. And to you. Cheers, mate. Bye-bye. The Natural High. Follow us on Twitter at Natural High Club. Love you.